Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. Mansplaining may be a relatively new term, but it is deeply rooted culturally. Evidence of mansplaining can be found as far back as the Founding Fathers. In a letter written in 1776 from John Adams to his wife, Abigail, in response to her Remember the Ladies letter, where Abigail Adams asks our second president to remember the ladies in any new laws he may create. She writes, quote, do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. In his reply, John Adams said, depend upon it. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems. In other words, he tells his wife that wives need not worry because the masculine system, meaning men, understand the experience of being a wife and know what is best for women. Now, on a side note, we have to give props to Abigail Adams. She was a badass to push these sentiments in the 18th century. In that same letter, she underscores her point, stating, if particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. And props need to go to John Adams, too, for marrying such a powerful and outspoken woman at that time. And in fairness to John Adams, the evidence does suggest that he truly saw Abigail as an intellectual equal. The thing is, though, she wanted her husband to protect women from those who didn't respect women the way that he did. This is always the issue with talking about mansplaining or other bad male behavior. There's always the risk of offending or turning off our male allies. I talked about male allyship in a previous episode, and please, male allies know, talking about bad behavior is not about calling out all men. It's about bringing to light social behaviors that can negatively impact gender equity so that we can all do better. And by do better, that can mean being an upstander, a call to see it, acknowledge it, and disrupt it. And so we need to talk about what mansplaining is and what it is not. If we see mansplaining as synonymous with being condescending, the immediate response will be, but what about womansplaining? Nobody is saying women are not ever condescending. Women can be condescending too. That's true, of course. But retorting with, why isn't there womansplaining, is a failure to consider historical context in terms of men speaking for women in politics, in the media, and still often in the workplace. There is no history of women having voice when men did not, of women creating laws and policies for men, or of women being in the position of power over men. This is an important part of the discussion. When we talk about gender differences, we have to consider the wider context, the historical context, and the data. Hegemony is the political, economic, or military predominance of one group over another. Given the data, can anyone really legitimately argue men's predominance over women in the areas of economics or political history, even today? Men have always and still hold most of the wealth, most positions of power, pay, and prestige, and most top leadership roles in industry and government. And this matters. When male is the default, when men are 
overwhelmingly considered the experts, we can't womansplain because mansplaining is not synonymous for condescension. It's so important to distinguish mansplaining from condescension and patronization. Mansplaining is a condescending explanation by members of a socially, culturally, or legally privileged group in their interactions with those who don't hold the same power and privilege. Women cannot partake in similar behaviors because we do not and have not ever in any country been in a position of power over men in any domain. Mansplaining is an interaction between a man and a woman where the man displays dominant behaviors, provides unsolicited and sometimes even incorrect information about a topic on which the woman has greater expertise. Mansplaining is where condescension and patronization intersect with bias, power, and privilege. Androcentric bias is the assumption that the male view is the norm or default. Androcentrism refers to the propensity to center society around men and men's needs, priorities, and values. This is well supported in the literature from how products are designed, like seatbelts, how crash test dummies reflect the average male build, to the medical industry. There's plentiful research to support how women's health has been adversely affected by overgeneralized medical research based solely on male participants. Even the temperatures adopted as appropriate or ideal in the workplace are derived from male comfort standards. And the list goes on and on, which is all to say that when male is the default, it is unlikely that women will throw around their expertise to women's flame to men. We're too busy proving it again, proving it over and over that we even have the expertise we've earned. The reality is, historically, men have spoken for women, and historically, women have not spoken for men. In an Atlantic Magazine article titled A Cultural History of Mansplaining, author Lily Rothman gives the example of an article written by Lyman Abbott, a prominent New England theologian that appeared in a 1903 issue of The Atlantic. The article was titled, Why Women Do Not Wish the Suffrage. Abbott writes, I believe it is because woman feels if she does not clearly see that the question of women's suffrage is more than merely political that it concerns the nature and structure of society, the home, the church, the industrial organism, the state, the social fabric. And to a change which involves a revolution in all of these, she interposes an inflexible, though generally a silent opposition. It is for these silent women whose voices are not heard in conventions, who write no letters, deliver no lectures, and visit no legislative assemblies that I speak. So hopefully you see the mansplaining smattered all over the article, starting with talking about what women feel and then don't quote unquote clearly see. Thank you, Abbott, for bringing clarity to women's feelings despite their apparent confusion on the issue. I don't think women were confused at all about the suffragette movement. They wanted the right to vote. As Abigail Adams said more than a century earlier to not quote, hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Then when he says, I speak for those who don't. Yes, Lyman Abbott, you totally know what women want better than they do. I guess women in favor of suffrage just didn't understand the true female experience as well as he did. And these are older examples, right? So you may be saying, that doesn't happen now. And this, again, is the dangerous and limiting mindset that suggests problems that hinder women have already been solved. Centuries later, in Solnit's very famous 2008 essay, Men Explain Things to Me, which later became the 2014 book, Men Explain Things to Me, 
This behavior, this phenomenon, was brought into the modern vernacular. Later that year, the term emerged in pop culture when it was first used on the internet meme database, Know Your Meme. And in 2014, the term mansplain was officially added to Oxford Dictionaries. From these origins, the term mansplain quickly gained momentum, especially in social media. It has steadily gained traction in the online community and in the media, much to the chagrin of many who argue it is sexist. And so we have to deconstruct the term and do a quick inventory of the power dynamics that are so important to the topic. Gender bias is rooted in the interpretation of who the expert is, or at least who the expert should be, along with the assumptions of which gender is more competent. It has been shown through research that the male vantage point is often seen as the default in relation to expertise on most topics of discussion. This androcentric bias, the assumption that the male view is the norm or the default, is proven in the research, which shows that men are often perceived by observers, colleagues, managers, associates, etc., as expert and as the most informed contributors, even when this is not the case. Part of this is the take control ideal, which is so valued in the workplace when men do it, but less so when women do. This is that tightrope bias, the balance between being perceived as too masculine or as too feminine when we don't adopt masculine traits. In the workplace, in most professional domains, the research shows that often men are expected to assume control or take charge while women are expected to take a step back, to foster cooperation, to be supportive. Long-standing and widely held, although often unconscious, beliefs about gender can reinforce women's perceived lower status position relative to men. This and many other biases I've discussed in previous episodes from unconscious bias, androcentric bias, tightrope bias, think leader, think male bias, explain how we still have very fertile ground for instances of mansplaining to bloom. So male allies may be asking, but how do I recognize mansplaining in others so I can be an upstander? Or maybe if you're really self-reflective and self-aware, really committed to the growth mindset, you might be asking, how do I know if I am unintentionally mansplaining? Author Kim Goodwin was asked this question by her male colleagues, and she created a chart, and I'll include a link to that highly entertaining graphic in the notes, and I'll post it on Advancing Women Podcast Instagram as well. But the chart evolved from these three very simple questions Goodwin asked. One, do they want the explanation? Goodwin notes, if someone asks you a question, explain away. Unsolicited explanations may be fine within reason if you're someone's teacher, manager, mentor, or confidant. Explaining after they've declined your help is almost always disrespectful. Conversation is a good place to start building the habit of consent. This is about helping level the playing field where power dynamics often favor men. Second, Goodwin asks, are you making bad assumptions about competence? Explaining things to knowledgeable people isn't just wasting everyone's time. You may, regardless of your intent, undermine them by implying you don't trust their competence or intelligence. You also run the risk of undermining yourself by looking like you have an inflated opinion of your own knowledge. From the research data, we know that men tend to be seen as experts and women have to prove it again and again. We need to be mindful of this with commentary. It may unintentionally perpetuate this bigger problem. So this ties to Goodwin's final question, the third question. How does bias affect your interpretation of the above? 
Both questions are complicated. We're all taught gender bias in behavior and communication from an early age, even with boys and girls being criticized and praised for different behaviors in school. We all like to think we treat people fairly and equitably, but it is often assumed women are less competent and knowledgeable. So in that context, that data-driven knowledge needs to be considered in terms of how these behaviors land and help preserve unfair and inequitable assumptions and stereotypes that can contribute to women's unequal status in leadership when we aren't recognized and respected as experts. And numerous studies over the past five years have explored women's reported experience with mansplaining. And from these detailed accounts, researchers have identified five areas where mansplaining is particularly pervasive. First, pop culture and current events. Things like politics, books, film, music, and sports, of course, where male is the default opinion is really prevalent. The second, men explaining women to women. Things like sex or gender roles, exercise and exercise techniques, the woman's body, women's sexual needs and sexual pleasure, what we feel and how we perceive things. The third thing, technology, things like vehicles, tools, computers, equipment. Fourth, work, things like men explaining your profession, the woman's profession to them when they are not in that profession. Explaining how to best perform one's job or equating an article or book they read is almost on par with a woman's decades of experience and learned expertise. And finally, education. In fact, many women with PhDs, for example, report men with very limited knowledge of a field in which they are seen as a top expert weighing in and providing unsolicited feedback, input, and guidance. And like most women, I can think of many times I've been mansplained to. But one of my favorite examples, one so filled with irony, you might not even believe it's a true story, but I assure you it is. I'm going to share with you the time someone mansplained my mansplaining research to me. So it's important to provide some context to set the tone here. First, this example is about a presentation that resulted from my scientific research and scholarship that was reviewed by my peers and received a best paper award at a national conference. My plan was to share the learning from my evidence-based scientific study at an internal brown bag lunch type of forum. Second, for context, I am a feminist scholar and gender equity expert. My PhD, which is in leadership and policy, and dozens of peer-reviewed articles and presentations focus primarily on structural, organizational, and societal barriers and biases that create inequity and hinder the advancement of women and underrepresented groups in top leadership roles. And this is all just to say that my research agenda and scholarship are grounded in that framework. Third, the person providing quote-unquote feedback was the coordinator of the forum, not a content person or reviewer or expert of any kind. I don't want you to think I can't take critique. This feedback came from a person that you submit the topic to for inclusion on the calendar and to promote the event. And finally, although this person is an academic, he does not conduct research, does not publish, is not a scholar, and has no degree or experience of study relative to gender equity. So the title of the published paper, and subsequently the title of the presentation, was Mansplaining 101, Male-Female Miscommunication Among Undergraduate Communication Majors. Myself, a peer, and our graduate assistant conducted a survey studying hundreds of undergraduate students to better understand their knowledge of and experience with mansplaining. 
We had seen evidence of mansplaining in the workplace and wanted to understand how prevalent the phenomenon was in a university setting, the time right before young men and women were entering the workforce. Also, it was a chance to explore how things might or might not be changing with younger generations. So I submitted this title to the forum, and here's the email message I got back. Quote, catchy title, at the risk of sounding sexist, can't we think of a title that places less onus on males? Keep mansplaining in the title, but find a way to work in an equitable sense of when people of different genders talk down to others. Is it worth allowing for times when women womensplain to men? I don't want to pick a fight here, but I and others could talk about female leaders who have done this. Please let me know. Thanks. So I won't lie here. I'm just going to shoot straight with you. This really pissed me off. I should have received it, I suppose, with a grain of salt, but I was blown away by the irony of being mansplained to about my research on mansplaining. You see the irony, right? Second, I had a bit of history with this person where consistently challenging my expertise, questioning my expertise, and providing unsolicited, quote unquote, coaching on topics he has little expertise in have kind of been a pattern. So I think this was just the straw that broke the camel's back for me. So I'm not necessarily proud of my response. I did stay on point in terms of the facts, but to be sure, my response was, if I'm honest, purposefully condescending. Not something I commonly do, but it just felt necessary and I was compelled to call it out. So here's how I responded. I hear you and appreciate your perspective, but to be clear, I am a scholar and not a journalist. I am not here to tell both sides of a story equally, but rather this research is meant to add to my body of research as a feminist researcher. Then I gave him some detailed explanations of the role of a feminist scholar. It seemed like maybe he didn't understand what that meant. How feminist research is meant to correct both the invisibility and distortion of the female experience in ways relevant to ending women's unequal social position. I explained how research in the social sciences has been found to, by and large, omit or distort the experience of women, and how research too often is solely concerned with the activities and interests of men. I ended with how feminist researchers don't also give voice to the dominant power, but rather focus on the lived experience of the marginalized and underrepresented. I needn't have done all that explaining, but I couldn't help feeling like I really needed to challenge his constant random thoughts and opinions against my decades of scientific study, knowledge, and expertise. Now, I know this is just one example But it's important to realize how often this happens both publicly and behind the scenes and how it contributes to undermining women's positions as experts. There is always backlash when the dominant power is challenged. So with mansplaining, it is unsurprising, predictable even, that we are now hearing rumblings of womansplaining. And that's just not a real thing. We need to call this behavior out and we need our male allies to not feel stung or attacked by the term to understand and consider the historical context of our experience in the workforce and in the world if we're going to try to create a more equitable professional landscape for women. We need to move off of being offended and on to paying attention with an open mindset. Call it out when we see it and curb it if we do it. There's been so much angst about the M word. Is it sexism in reverse? Sorry, but no, it is not. 
Plenty of evidence supports the idea that communication behaviors are often gendered in many ways. Studies show that in meetings, men speak more, exert more power-up language. Contrary to gender stereotypes, in meetings, research shows men interrupt more. And research shows men are less likely than women to concede the floor when they are interrupted. Women worry, correctly, by the way, that if they fight to get their voices heard, they will experience backlash. Again, having to constantly make the choice between being liked and being seen as competent or the expert. In an online article titled Mansplaining, New Solutions to a Tiresome Old Problem, the author, Sarah Kaplan, a professor of strategic management and director of an Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto notes, quote, not all men is the regular refrain, but honestly, such protestations smack of an unwillingness to listen to the legitimate experience of women in the workplace. And it's unfair that while mansplaining is done by men to women, the solutions all seem to talk about how women can address it rather than how and why men should stop doing it, end quote. Too often, the advice given to women when this type of things happens is to either call it out, which can have professional capital consequences, or ignore it, which can both normalize and legitimize the behavior. As Kaplan states, we need to stop giving women advice on how to fix the inequalities and discrimination they face and instead look to the perpetrators to change their behavior and to organizations to change workplace dynamics. Fixing the women is a costly solution for women and could result in companies losing valuable female employees. This is such an important point and one we need to rally around if we're serious about creating a more fair, equitable, and inclusive workforce and world. And so my manifest statement this week builds on one I've used in the past. Warrior women, you are neither broken nor defective. You don't need to be fixed. And men, you are not being put on blast or villainized when we talk about mansplaining. You are being asked to try to see it from our perspective within the larger historical context. That, after all, is the essence of male allyship and a crucial part of challenging the status quo and being a part of the real change we need to see. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com, and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback and ideas on topics, so please email me at Dr. D. Simone at advancingwomenpodcast.com with your ideas and feedback. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.